Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. My guest today is Mike Dariano, and as I've mentioned in previous episodes of this show, one of the beautiful things that I've come to realize about having my own podcast, about creating content in this digital world, is the ability to serendipitously find new relationships, new people, and learn from all sorts of sources. Mike is one of those sources. When I was just getting started, he found my podcast and we had some Twitter exchanges. I learned a little bit more about some of the cool stuff he was doing with his blog and slowly started to interact more and more uh, as the months went by. And finally thought, you know, we've, I, I love the stuff he writes. I'm a fan of what he's working on. We have similar tastes in reading kind of makes sense that we should come on and have a podcast. So shot of an email, we made it happen very quickly. The beauty of digital technology and Skype allowed us to connect over the phone. So I'm really excited to be sharing this episode that we recorded with you today. Um, if you want to check him out, head over to thewaiterspad.com or check him out on Mike Dariano on Twitter. Or you can check out the show notes for this episode at goingdeepwithaaron.com slash podcast. But I will quit rambling on and simply let you enjoy my conversation with Mike Dariano. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for having me, Aaron. This is pretty cool. We've had a couple of kind of digital interactions around some previous episodes of the podcast. I've become a fan of one of your blogs, The Waiter's Pad, where you take notes on different podcast episodes and kind of condense and focus the lessons that can be taken away from listening to some of these episodes that can be you know, well over an hour long and, and distilling that into something a little bit more focused, which I've really appreciated. So I guess to kind of start things off for those of you, for the people out there who have not come across your work before, can you just give a brief overview of the multiple things you do? You have a podcast, you write, what you do, and how you got in, interested in that. Sure. It all started uh, really when I was on a run one day, and I was um, constantly stopping and taking my iPhone off my arm and taking it out of the armband and creating little notes about things that I heard in the podcast that I listened to. And I got back from that run and I thought, why don't I just uh, figure out a better way to do this? Why don't I uh, share this online and, um, and, and give my notes to other people? And so that's, that's what I started doing. And it started from the waiter's pad where at first I was just listening to James Altucher's podcast. And James has some really good guests, but as people got into podcasting more and more, there were more and more podcasts to do it for. So now my podcast queue is so long that I never get a chance to listen to everything that I have. But I try to pick and choose the good things and, like you said, uh, break apart like a few solid takeaways from, uh, from what some of the guests have to say. In terms of how you manage all this, like how, how your – how, how would you describe your profession in more detail? I know you have, you're, you're doing writing, you're doing this podcast. Like if someone is just bumping into you at a party and you're trying to explain 
the work that you're doing in a couple sentences? How do you really break that down for them? Or where's like the first place that you direct them that's kind of like your baby, your primary project? Um, I would tell people that I just create things. I saw a Casey Neistat video, uh, maybe it was a few days ago, and he's talking about how the way to stay ahead is to always be changing. And so it's hard to tell people to, you know, they could certainly search for me in Google, but I would just tell them to go to Amazon and find a book. Or, you know, in the course of conversation, I would tell them about one of my projects, like my podcast or my medium posts or um, a book that I wrote on survivor bias and things like that. And so it's really hard to tell people a single place anymore so much as sort of here's what I'm doing right now. That's a really interesting kind of transition that's happening. It used to be, you know, maybe if you had like a Facebook page and a Twitter page, that was all you really needed or your website and a Twitter account, something like that. But there's this constantly evolving and it's ever quickening different places where your content can land, whether it's a podcast feed, a YouTube channel, uh, medium posts, as you mentioned. What are some of the changes that you've had to make recently in terms of where you're creating content and what brought about those changes or that realization? So uh, two ways. The first was I started a podcast um, and that grew out of the things that I was writing at the waiter's pad where some of those posts were... um, 2,000, 3,000, I think my longest one was 5,500 words, which is a really long blog post. That's a really long ask of people to, to read the whole thing. And so I wanted to start the podcast as a challenge to myself to, to see if I could explain things in a more condensed manner. And so all of my podcasts are like 8 to 12 minutes long, and that's my attempt to, to refine my storytelling and to do that Right now, there's a guy online. His name is escaping me, but have you heard of the Rock Challenge? I have not. Ah, so this guy uh, decided for 30 days that he would go ahead and he would eat and train like Dwayne the Rock Johnson. And so, okay. and so he, he found his workout routine in like one of those fitness magazines, and he found his eating plan um, based on uh, a movie promotion that Johnson was doing. And so he did it. He, he imitated him for 30 days. And he said, this was really cool, but my goal wasn't so much to look like The Rock or train like The Rock or be as fit as The Rock. It was just an internal challenge as to whether or not I could do this, whether or not I could put this obstacle in front of me and conquer it. And that's sort of how I feel about all these different mediums we have now. It's like you don't necessarily have to to own like a dot-com and put everything there and have a single Twitter page. I know know not owning a dot-com is is sacrilege to Paul Graham, but Ezra Klein did an interview a while ago. And notice, I'm not name dropping to name drop. I have to, I have to say these names to, uh, to keep track of what podcast I heard all these ideas on, so I'm not stealing someone's ideas. But Klein was saying about his project, Vox, it doesn't matter so much whether or not their content is on Vox or YouTube or Snapchat or whatever it is. They just need their content out there. And for people to know that the people behind this, that is Klein's company, is is really where the value is, not necessarily in the dot-com. Yeah, it is interesting that if a lot of people take this mentality of, well, what's the new social media platform? I need to be there. I need to be on, like, the next hot, hip thing. Whereas kind of taking this alternative approach of if I'm creating things that are good, if I'm creating things that people are enjoying, that are getting value from, that are entertaining to them, then hopefully they'll find me. Hopefully they will interact with me on 
the mediums that I am choosing to interact on. And there's kind of a fine line balance there where you can't be like exclusively writing things. I mean, maybe you could, but exclusively writing things on like a typewriter because no one's going to see that. Everyone is digital. You have to have some degree of savviness and awareness of the culture and, and where the times are. But at the same time, if all you're doing is chasing the trend that's already happened, then you're basically just going to be caught never really standing out of the crowd. Is that is that something you would agree with or take a different spin on? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Whenever all these social media ideas come up, and it feels weird. I'm only 33, but I, I feel like... Um, I feel like social media has almost gone past me. I have a Snapchat account, but man, if that's not <laughs> if that's not the hardest thing for me to to figure out, I know how to snap. I just don't get why I need to snap. Um, and so and so when I'm caught in situations like this, I try to think of counterexamples. So when I feel the need to chase what is hip or what is cool, I think of what a counterexample to that is. And so one of my favorite ways to create is to write. And so I think of someone like. Uh, Michael Lewis or Malcolm Gladwell or writers where I will read whatever they write. And Lewis doesn't have a Twitter account. He doesn't have an email feed. He doesn't have a private Facebook group. He doesn't have any of these things, but he's so good that he doesn't need those things. And so if you get your work to a certain quality, then maybe you need some of these other things that people are, you need less of these things that people are trying to figure out. That's a great point, and I know that you are a pretty prolific reader in terms of your own pursuit of improving your skills, improving the quality of the work that you're creating. Can you talk a little bit about your process, your development as a writer, as an educator, and how you think about refining your skills? The, the book that had the biggest influence on me was uh, Cal Newport's So Good They Can't Ignore You. Have you read this book? I have not. It is, it is on the huge list of things that I hope to eventually get to, but I have heard of it. It's, it's very good. And the, the title comes from a uh, Steve Martin quote. So Steve Martin, um, comedian, uh, Grammy Award winning banjo player. He was once asked, well, how do you get good at this? You know, you've had this career of success in stand up and movies and this new musical uh, success. How do you do it? And and Martin says that he gave the advice nobody ever wants to hear. He says, you just have to work hard and be so good that they can't ignore you. And so Newport used that quote as the title of his book. And he really breaks down what it means to be good at something. He also has a new book out this year called Deep Work, which elaborates on some of those ideas. But I think the key is to, is to really focus on something that you can be good at. Taylor Pearson recently shared a post about the Helsinki bus station and we won't go into it um, on the podcast, but you can include it in the links. And it's a really inspirational piece about how you need to just stay on the bus. You need to pick a path and determine that this is the path you want and know that it's going to take a long time and it's going to take a lot of hard work. But eventually that path will take that path will lead you uh, where you want to go. Gary Vaynerchuk was just on the Rich Roll podcast and he's he's telling Rich, who's who's a really healthy and fit guy. Uh, Roll has done uh, many marathons, ultra marathons, and he's telling Rich how he's been working with his personal trainer for two years, and he has, like, no chest muscle. So Vaynerchuk is, like, getting frustrated that, like, he's putting in all this time, all this work, and still there's, there's really no results to show for it. And then he looks in the mirror one day, and he's like, duh, this is what you tell people about business all the time. This is, like, one of your, one of your mantras. This is who you are. 
you need to apply these lessons that things take a long time that he already knows in business, he needs to apply it to his physical health as well. And so um, it just takes a really long time and you need to practice and get good. And, uh, and like Martin said, it's not the advice people want to hear, but it's, it's sort of the advice that works. For sure. I mean, the, the other great point Gary Vee makes is that he, I think he's in his early 40s now, and he talks about how the difference between perhaps being an athlete and being a businessman is that in business, your prime, the, the height of your powers could be in your 50s. It, it can be way, way later. You have a lot more time to build towards your prime. Whereas for an athlete, most primes are over by the early to mid 30s you have exceptions maybe with like a tom brady or someone but most people's physical peak is going to come sometime in their 20s and that's something we've, we've talked about this a little bit in previous articles but in terms of reinvention and refocus is is a is a big consideration that i have in terms of trying to find something i've, I've dedicated a ton of time to ultimate frisbee and growing that part of my life and my game but realizing there's a much shorter shelf life uh, in regards to that. So in terms of you've, you've talked about this mentality of constantly chasing greatness with the work that you're doing. And one thing that is very prevalent in your work is that you talk about cognitive biases, wanting to teach people about this, wanting to explore it for yourself, for your own edification. And what's curious is a lot of the previous guests that we've had on the show, um, I've also talked about cognitive biases, but it's very often focused on kind of the world of finance. And we'll occasionally extrapolate that to other facets of life. But a lot of guys who focus on that are coming from a sort of finance background. So I'm kind of curious just to, to dive in a little bit with you about the application of your study of cognitive biases and how you apply that to other parts of life outside of personal finance. Well, um, and your podcast with some of your past guests have been really good. Have have been have been so wonderful. I feel like I am uh, I, I am like the minor league version of some of the other podcasts that you have done, um, and I think that you see it a lot in finances because finance it's easy to measure and then it's easy to test. Whereas like if you were trying to test a cognitive bias in in politics, say you could say, well, um, you know maybe that wasn't a cognitive bias. Maybe maybe it was something else. There's fewer numbers that you can back it up in. And it shows up, I think, in finance because you can have those numbers. You can see um, Richard Fowler does a lot of really good work on cognitive biases. He wrote a book called Misbehaving um, that was very good, and he talks about cognitive biases. And I think some other ways that we see cognitive biases in our life are things like, um, like the endowment effect or like the status quo bias, where we just keep doing things over and over. Can you elaborate on the endowment effect? Yeah. Um, so, so the endowment effect is the idea that just because you own something, um, it's more valuable. So in studies, the most famous study of this is with coffee cups, where Richard Fowler bought um, like half a dozen coffee cups from the campus bookstore. And he, he took them into class, and he handed them out to class one day. And he said, okay, all of you that have coffee cups, uh, you just got them. Write down a price on a slip of paper that you would now sell your coffee cup for. And then he talked to everyone else and he said, okay, you don't have a coffee cup, but write down on a slip of paper what you would buy one for. And so Fowler collected all of these slips and he found out that the people who owned the coffee cups or that, that had the coffee cups valued them much more highly than the people who didn't own them. Uh, Dan Ariely found this study 
found the same thing uh, when he studied Duke University basketball tickets. And in Ariely's case, there wasn't a single bit of overlap. That is, people who had won a lottery for Duke basketball tickets never went lower than what the highest price was from people who didn't win. So we have this endowment effect where we tend to overvalue the things we have, and that can lead us to make um, less than great decisions. I'm totally aware of this endowment effect when it comes to my car. We have, our family has this huge Chevy Traverse. It seats seven people. We have a family of four. This thing, the only time our Traverse is ever full is when we're like going camping or something like that, where there's like tents and bicycles in the whole nine yards. But guess what? I've been having this thought that that car is too big for us for like 18 months or two years, but I still haven't downsized our car because there's just this tendency to like overvalue it, to think of the very few instances that we use this, this big car rather than the many instances when we don't. Absolutely. I, I, another one that was one of my favorites was the sunk cost fallacy and just the illusion that, you know, if I put all this time into something, it, it's kind of related. I put all this time into something or I've been, dropped a lot of money into a certain project. And moving forward, the only way you should be making a decision is what is this going to cost me in the future? But that previous money that you've spent, that pain is very easy to cloud the judgment of something. So if you're if you're paying to maybe fix up a car, oh, I've already I've put so much into fixing the transmission or this that or the other thing on my vehicle. I I've got to ride it out, and that just being another version of a cognitive bias that you can apply to your day to day life. That's really helpful. Do you find yourself? This is something I've I've been noticing as I've been studying these things. Is it's much easier to see this in others. So your friends in your social group, your significant other, your family members, it's so much easier to see that in other people than it is to see that in yourself. Do you have any process by, for self-examination or how do you go about navigating that reality? This is, this is perfect timing with this question because Venkatesh Rao was just on the Tropical MBA podcast. And if you are interested in all about busting your biases or reframing situations or seeing through the projections that you project on the world, you have to listen to that. So he talks a lot about ways that you can get over the blindness that you have yourself. I had a personal experience that worked really well was I just got back from vacation. Um, our family took a 10-day vacation uh, and we went on a, a Caribbean cruise and it was wonderful. I knew this vacation was coming, so all of the writing and creative work I needed to get done, I got done ahead of time, and I created this two-day buffer when we got back. So there wasn't anything I had to get done in the first two days. And what that made me do is it made me re-choose. I had to re-opt in to all of the things that I had been doing. And so I noticed that, that maybe I was reading too little or I was reading too much or all of these things that I had sort of gotten in the routine of that I had gotten blind to, having that break coming home from vacation was a nice way to get past that cognitive bias or that status quo bias that I've been doing it the same way over and over again. Uh, Charlie Munger has a nice quote that um, when he's talking about Ben Graham, Ben Graham calls Mr. Market the bipolar Mr. Market. And so when you anthropomorphize something like that, you're also reframing it in a different light. Whereas coming home from vacation, it was, this is not something I did on vacation. This is something I'm doing now. So that switch caused me to reevaluate it. Benjamin Graham, looking at something as static and inhuman versus anthropomorphizing it 
and making it something with human tendencies. And that's one way that you can look at these own biases, but it's really hard to figure out what your own biases are. Absolutely. I, I think that it maybe the best thing you can have is a partner or a friend or someone who both you have a confident enough relationship with that they can call you on your BS, so to speak, but also are equally or to a different degree aware of these same cognitive biases and you can provide helpful feedback back to each other because it is so hard. I, I know for me, uh, there, there'll be times where after the fact, it, it, maybe it's like a week later or a month later, you think about something like, oh, I was just so wrong. I, I was applying my obscene biases to that situation and you know, there's nothing you can do about it, but it, it's nice to have people who can give you that feedback. Uh, really quickly, I have, I have a couple friends that I lean on for that type of stuff, and then you start getting down this rabbit hole of, well, am I picking friends based on my cognitive biases, and is it just reinforcing things that I'm further blind to? It's, it's a whole mess. It's 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 a very easy rabbit hole to get down into personally. It is a mess, uh, and um, but and and but the point of biases isn't necessarily that they're wrong. Like just because um, there's this endowment effect of um, overvaluing things that you have versus when you don't have them. Uh, that doesn't mean it's wrong. It's more like something you have to be aware of, like, okay, this is why I'm acting this way. This is why I'm thinking this way. Uh, sometimes those things don't reach a tipping point. Uh, do you remember, you read Deep Survival by uh, Lawrence Gonzalez, right? Absolutely. You remember the part about bending the map? Yeah, but you can explain it to the, uh, the audience just so that they're up to speed. So uh, Gonzalez has written a wonderful book called uh, Deep Survival. And he talks about uh, how when people sometimes get lost in the wilderness, even if they have a map, um, and sometimes if they have a compass, they can still bend the map. That is, rather than looking at the landmarks around them and then the map, they try to project on the map where they want to be rather than where they are. And in the survival literature, that's called bending the map, where you, you, uh, where you want to be rather than where you are. And uh, that's a cognitive bias, too. Absolutely. I actually had a, a wilderness survival expert, uh, Eric Kulik, on about 30 episodes ago, and he basically talked about, from a descending list of priorities, what you have to be conscientious of in a survival situation. Number one is your own mental state. If you are panicking, if you are overly emotional, which is what you're going to be if you're in a real, genuine survival situation, not some drill that you're running. Uh, you have to take stock of where you are mentally and refocus and recalibrate before you try to do anything else. Because if you just try to act while you're in that heightened emotion state, you're going to be in trouble. And, and that is when the mistakes that are outlined in deep survival are going to happen. So that is that is fantastic. And that is something that is really hard to get to without the right type of practice. Because another thing in that book that Gonzalez goes over is that sometimes the risk is that you're too experienced. So there was one instance of hikers who were on a mountain that maybe wasn't the hardest mountain that they could potentially be climbing. And they didn't give it the same respect that maybe a newbie climber or a newbie hiker would have given. Where someone who's new, they're very, very tightly tied and oriented to all the safety procedures because they just learned them. They don't know anything else. They don't know about wiggle room. Whereas someone who's experienced may bring a bias or a, a confidence of, well, I'm beyond the baseline level of proficiency. I don't need the same considerations. And how that can kind of devolve into really extreme dangerous situations and how not only is that 
common, but it's something that is repeated over and over again. It's, it's a breakdown or a reality of the human condition that confidence is going to at some point trump the basic safety procedures that you learned starting off. Yep. And uh, didn't you find that book to be, even though it was about survival in the wilderness, weren't there many parts of that that you related just to your, your normal everyday life? For sure. I, I, as I've mentioned, I, I relate a lot of things to my athletic career. And so that is a big one for me where I think that there's, uh, you, you love the survivorship bias and we can, we can break that down a little bit more next, but we, I was on two teams that won national championships. And one thing that we, as like a program at Pitt definitely struggled or tried to try to negotiate was how much are we applying the formula that worked for the last time we won like how much of that are we just saying, well, that was the right way to do things because we won. But if we had happened to lose a game or, we, you know, this time we happen to have different players, are we kind of taking things that really aren't as applicable as we think they are? And across the board, I think that that is, is something that is really challenging, whether it's business, entrepreneurship, sports, any any pursuit. I think that you know as well as I, that is a very challenging one to overcome. It's something that in terms of developing a strategy uh, for any pursuit, winning a game, uh, building a business, building a team that you have to have, have to be very conscientious of. Absolutely. So I want to start wrapping things up here. This is actually flown by. Uh, and before we tell people how to connect with you, you issue your personal challenge and all that, we've both occupied this space as creators, as people who are trying to learn from the other creators out there. And you've spoken to this idea of just making things, being so good people can't ignore you. But if people out there are listening and they are, I actually, the reason I'm asking this, I had a conversation this past week with someone who was just starting their blog. They were going to make their very first post and was giving him a little bit of advice and realizing that sometimes the advice out there can be two, three, four, five steps down the road from that. Uh, looking back, if you, were, if you were giving advice to someone who is just starting in the realm of creating things, videos, podcasts, writing, um, outside of the book, uh, Cal Newport's book, So Good They Can't Ignore You, is there any other advice or wisdom that you'd be able to share? Uh, yeah, this is, so this is a hybrid of advice that Austin Kleon and Ira Glass both talk about. And it is that your work at the beginning is going to stink. My work still stinks. A lot of what I write is really bad. A lot of my stuff is really bad. And you have to be really comfortable with that, that it's going to stink for a really, really, really long time. And the hard part that Cleon and Glass talk about is that you're going to see the difference between your work and the work that, of people you admire and it is just going to be so discouraging. I just finished a book, uh, The Geography of Genius by Eric Weiner, and it is so good. It is the kind of thing where I don't think I could ever write anything as good as that. But that's okay. Like, I don't necessarily need to be that great of a writer, but I know that I'll never be that great if I don't just keep trying, if I don't do a little bit of work every day. So I'm comfortable stinking right now, but I also know that if I put in the work a little bit every day, eventually I'll get better. Absolutely. Could not agree more. I think another – we're running through the uh, the famous quotes and creators here, but Woody Allen says 90% of success is just showing up. So if you continue to 
create things, create that output, share, and you know, work on those mistakes and grow. Things will be all right. Got to have confidence in that. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, before we tell people how to connect with you, is there anything that I didn't give you a chance to say? Um, no, that sounds good. Cool. So if people want to learn more about you, connect in the digital world, check out the cool stuff you're doing, where are the best places to find you? Um, if you search for Mike Dariano or Michael Dariano on any uh, any search engine box, that should uh, land on me. If you want my shorter writing, do it in Google or Medium. If you want longer stuff, uh, search on Amazon. And I'm on Twitter at Mike Dariano. Cool. As always, that will be linked to in the show notes at goingdeepwitharen.com slash podcast. We'll also include some of those articles and podcasts that uh, Mike and I mentioned today. But before we let him go, we're going to make Mike stick around and issue his personal challenge to the audience. My personal challenge is to read more books. Uh, Nothing has changed my life that I control more than reading books. Uh, marriage is, is wonderful. Kids are wonderful. Uh, living different places has been wonderful. But the biggest thing that can have an effect on your life is how you think. And the biggest thing that can influence how you think is reading books. I like it. And in a world where people are always looking for hacks and shortcuts to things, often a book seems like the obstacle or the opposite of that. And if you take the right mentality that you are getting to taste or sample the wisdom of some of the smartest people and you can get all of that in one book uh it it is it is a, a powerful reframing of that process and a lot of value will come from that thank you so much for the challenge mike and thank you so much for coming on we just went deep with michael dariano hope everyone out there has a great day Hey everyone, hope you enjoyed that episode. Ton of goodies over in the show notes at goingdeepwitharen.com slash podcast. Make sure you check those out and check out Mike as well. He's doing a, a ton of cool stuff you can definitely learn a lot from. If you enjoyed today's episode, particularly uh, what we were talking about in terms of new creators, if you knew someone out there who's just started a blog or a YouTube channel or a podcast or some sort of new form of creation, I'd love to connect with them. And so sharing that episode, copy me either in a tweet at AaronWatson59 or an email at goingdeepaaron at gmail.com. I'd love to be a part of helping someone else also start creating, start contributing uh, their voice to the fray. And I'd appreciate that share as well. So make sure you check that out. Copy me if you do so. And uh, just continue to uh, tune in. We have a ton of cool guests coming on. I really appreciate you sharing a half hour of your day to listen to my program. I know that that is significant and it's something I really, really appreciate and will continue to take very seriously and do my best to produce the best possible episodes I can. So thank you and have a beautiful day.